HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised uh, livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45, approximately, in the studio today in Bushwick with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, who's looking up some last-minute questions that you guys have sent in. How are you doing, Nastasha? I'm fine. It's a cr- yeah, right. You sound really fine. I'm fine. Anyway, it's a crappy day out here in Bushwick, and I had a crappy bike ride, but I won't talk about it. I won't bore you with it. Uh, call in all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128 for all of your questions, cooking or not really, uh, tech or not, any questions, we'll take them. Anyway, first question in on the email is from Mike Anonymous. Oh, shoot. I should talk about uh, today's sponsor. Today's sponsor uh, is the same sponsor as last week, which is the Modernist Pantry. I'll read their little blurb uh, because I'm obliged, and then I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Um, whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH modifiers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With worldwide shipping, Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Fans of cooking issues... At, oh, oh uh, by the way... So this last week we ran a promotion, and so rather than read the little same blurb because it's the same thing as that, I'm going to give a follow-up. Uh, Chris wrote into us and said, we got a good response from last week's show. Uh, he says we have a group of avid fans from around the world following us. That's very gratifying, right, Nastasha? Yeah. Yeah, yeah she's, she doesn't care. She's doing something else. Uh, since a bunch of people didn't hear the podcast in time to take advantage of the free meat glue, Modernist Pantry is going to run the special again this week and leave it, opening until, leave it open until next week's show. So all of you that call in... 
for this entire week until next Tuesday's podcast can get uh, the free sample of meat glue from Modernist Pantry. And the code that you need to enter, the promo code, is CI, as in cooking issues, 54. That's CI, 54. Uh, and please let, uh, let them know that you uh, – oh, also, tell them, you know, obviously they know that you listen to this show. If you put in CI, 54, tell your buddies too. It's going to make it seem like we have a lot of listeners. Um, in addition, we mentioned last week we were hoping that they were going to be able to get – Pectinex SPL, which is the miracle enzyme that we use for almost everything. We use it for clarification, either with or without a centrifuge, although it really only clarifies uh, thinner juices like apple juice without a centrifuge. Uh, we use it for French fries, make them really crispy, and we use it for uh, auto-supreming citrus and things like that. Uh, they're going to be carrying that uh, in a week or so. They don't have a pre-order page yet up, but keep your eyes peeled because they're going to start carrying it, which is really great because we hate... Uh, carrying that stuff, right, Nastasha? Yeah, we do. You can still get it uh, for the current time being through uh, through the FCI, through the French Culinary. Contact uh, Hervé Malavere, but I'm looking forward to a worldwide supply in small quantities from Chris Anderson at the Modernist Pantry. So thanks, guys, and make sure to go to www.modernpantry.com, modernistpantry.com, and type in cooking issues CI 54. 54? Yes. 54. For your free meat glue sample. Anyway, uh, First question in is from Mike Anonymous. We've gotten stuff from Mike Anonymous before, right? Yes. It's a good name. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be awesome if that was his actual name, Mike Anonymous? <laughs> that would suck growing up, right? Mm-hmm. No, that's my name. Anyway, okay. Uh, Mike says, I would like to hear your thoughts on what new technologies we can expect to find in the home kitchen in the near future. I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on induction burners as I hope to update my stove in the near future. Sincerely, Mike Anonymous. Okay, interesting question. Uh, I get this question actually quite a bit. Uh, I'm, you know... For a living, I'm mainly concerned with what goes on in restaurant kitchens, but I also am interested in what's going on in home kitchens. Here's what I think. Here's what, here's what I think. Regarding induction burners, they're awesome. Uh, they're really, really awesome. They have, there's a number of problems with induction burners that have stopped them from becoming kind of, uh, you know, set from saturating the market. If you currently own an electric stove, if you don't have gas, the very next thing you should do after listening to this podcast is go home Tear out your electric range, whether it be a ceramic top or you know one of those little curly, curly resistance heater jobs. Tear it out of the wall and throw it away and buy an induction unit right now. I mean, like before you do anything else, because if you're already running electric for your range, you have no excuse. Electric is expensive. It uh, it's very inefficient compared to an induction burner, and it heats up your kitchen, and it also takes a long time to heat up and cool down. It has a weird porpoise effect. I detest cooking with normal uh, electric ranges. And if you've never used an induction burner before, they're kind of miraculous. They um, they heat up almost instantly, and they cool off almost instantly. Uh, and you know, everyone's like, "Man, me, me, well, maybe my pots won't work. Me, me, me." You can buy a little slug of iron. Uh, Kuhn Recon sells one, for instance, that you could put right on top of an induction burner and turn any pot, a clay pot, an aluminum pot, whatever, into an induction-friendly pot. And uh, if you factor in the cost of a a range and the kind of electrical savings and the fact that you won't be air-conditioning your house to make up for the fact that you're dumping all the extra heat into the house, um, it really saves money in the long run, even if you have to get rid of a few pots and pans. So if you're already electric, please go get an induction right now. If you run gas, there's a couple of problems with induction. One, 
we are kind of the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. We have natural gas leaking out of our pipelines. Like we have so much natural gas that, you know, your local utility can't even tell if there's an appreciable amount leaking just because it's dribbling everywhere. It's preposterously cheap natural gas in this country. If you live outside of this country in Europe, for instance, or I don't know what the situation is elsewhere where natural gas is a lot more expensive and electric is more competitive from a, from a uh, you know, from an energy standpoint, energy uses standpoint, also you should move to induction right away. In the U.S., um, gas is so cheap uh, that it's kind of hard from an economic standpoint to make the jump right away. Now, induction is faster, as fast as gas, let's put it that way, uh, and in some cases faster because you're directly heating the, uh, the pot instead of having gas heat the pot. Um, it's incredibly more efficient than gas. So for a smaller amount of energy usage, you're getting a, a lot more heat on the pot. So we, we have a standard kind of commercial style uh, range in our amphitheater at school, and we put uh, like kind of a standard home induction unit next to uh, the commercial range, and the home induction unit boils water faster than the range does. So you really can't compare BTUs of gas output to how many watts are going into your induction burner. You need to compare how fast they boil water. And a decent-sized induction burner is usually faster than a decent-sized gas burner and typically doesn't heat up your house a lot. So it's fantastic that way. But it has a disadvantage that gas is a lot cheaper. Also, people aren't used to using an induction burner, and they can't see kind of how much power they're putting into it, so there's a little bit of a learning curve. And the other problem is inductions are a lot more fragile. A gas unit is never going to break. I mean, you might have to remount the gas jets or whatever, but basically that sucker is going to work from now until your kids are old. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and so those are the two, two main things. But I really, really like induction. Was that call for us? No. Just a random call? It was my mom. You forgot to turn off your phone? Yeah. Really? Mm, all right. Uh, in terms of other things that are uh, good for uh, home kitchen, I sincerely hope that um, sous vide is going to become more popular. Actually, low temperature cooking. I can't believe I made that mistake of all people. Uh, low temperature cooking is going to be more important. And I'm hoping that a lot of people have circulators. I'm hoping circulators, emergent circulators come down in price simply because when you throw a party, they make you look like a complete rock star because you don't have to spend a lot of time in the kitchen while your guests are there. The food comes out always perfect, always good. I love them. I use them all the time. I used one last night. I used one this weekend. At home, I'm talking. I use my circulator all the time. For reheating also, it's very good because it's not going to ruin your food on a reheat. The problem with it is not only the $800 price tag. The uh, problem is that you know there's not that many cookbooks and sources out there. I mean, our blog, I'm supposed to write more on this subject, but it's not as many recipes out there um, – as there could be, and not as much knowledge as there could be. And part of the problem is, is that it's hard to get a major publisher to put out kind of a, a simpler book because not that many people have the unit yet. It's kind of a catch twenty two. So, you know, you don't want to come out with a book that then requires you to buy an eight hundred piece of dollar piece of equipment to own the book. And you know, so it's one of these like chicken egg problems. Uh, but you know, I think there's enough information there on the internet, enough early adopters and people who are willing to experiment that within 10 years, you're going to see circulators drop in price again and also become a lot more common in home kitchens because they're really good in home kitchens for the same reason they're good in a restaurant kitchen. You're going to mess up your food less often. You're going to have more control, delicious results and without a lot of time when you want to be eating with your family. So I think that's going to be a, a huge thing. As for other innovations in the in the home, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I hope that our refrigerators and freezers get better, right? Although, I have you know, for those of you that have never been in a professional kitchen before, 
commercial fridges and freezers typically there's a couple exceptions like i like the guys at randall's they're the worst they break all the time they're loud and they're completely inefficient so home fridges and freezers are actually uh, already quite good compared to commercial ones but i think they have a long way to go i'm hoping more people have really butt-kicking blenders in their house which we'll talk more about blenders in a minute anything else you can think of that we usually harp on nastasha no i think you covered it yeah yeah, nothing else. I mean, I really, you know, you guys, like, in a home, no one's going to go, I mean, look, should, should you get liquid nitrogen? If you have uh, a lot of parties in an outdoor space, I mean, yeah, I mean, you need to follow the safety rules. But I like liquid nitrogen a lot. Do I think it's going to be in everybody's house? No. Uh, everyone who drinks seltzer should have a professional carbonation rig right now. Like, if, look, if, let me put it this way. If you carry more than one case of seltzer home a week, you should get a professional seltzer rig or at least one of those soda streams tomorrow. First do the induction. After you get the induction squared away, tomorrow go out and get the uh, carbonation rig. I'm trying to think of what else I have. Most people aren't going to get commercial units, uh, uh, you know, restaurant units in their home like I have. Most people aren't going to get a large deep fryer at home, although I love mine. I have a 35-pound deep fryer and a fryer like a mamma jamma, much better than a home fryer. But I don't think people are going to get that. I don't think most people are going to get the $400 blender, although I advocate it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the future, there might be a one-stop machine that can be a really good rice cooker and a pressure cooker. That might be good, save some countertop space. But, you know, people aren't going to get freeze dryers and homogenizers and all that stuff at home just because there's not as many applications. Not, there's not a um, – they don't warrant the counter space and the time uh, and, you know, the energy involved. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Now my iPad turned off, so I have to go find the next question. Uh, okay. Well, I do have a question on blenders. Should I take the question on blenders or should we go to the first commercial break, you think? I'll take the question on blenders, and if I have to run long, I'll run long. Okay. So uh, a big hello from James in Australia to the entire Cooking Issues team. And by the way, James wrote in a question and then answered the question and then asked a separate question. So I'm just going to go over the question. We'll see how, see how it works out. James is after a new blender, but down in Australia, Vitapreps, which are the blenders that we use up here in New York uh, and all of the U.S. really, Vitapreps are insanely expensive, like more than 1200 bucks. Uh, which is slightly less than the uh, polyscience uh, immersion circulators cost over there. And um, there is no secondhand market, which there really is, and people don't tend to give up their Vitapreps unless they're dead, unless they're broken. Um, a home-style model is a, a Vitaprep because Vitaprep makes a, a home version and a, and a commercial version. You know what the difference is? Almost nothing, except the warranty. They give you a crappier warranty on the commercial unit because they know they're going to beat the ever-loving crap out of it. Anyway, uh, the home unit is just under $1,000. My other options are a home-grade uh, Blendtec, which is another good blender uh, that comes in around $800. But there's a locally made option, a Breville, that's about $250, which is also available in the U.S. It's 2,000 watts, 500 watts more powerful than the Blendtec and the consumer Vitamixes. Uh, and so the, the question is basically – and it's the hemisphere model of Breville. I'm going to have a lot to say about this. And then he basically um, – well, okay. So he comes up with another one later called a uh, Samek. Uh, is that what it's called? you got to find it for me, Nastasha. It's called a C-Mac, which is from Australia, C-Mac Blender, which looks like a really professional kind of butt-kicking unit, which is, I think, what he's going to go after. And his question is basically, what's the difference between all these blenders? What the hell is the deal with blenders anyway? How to choose a blender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So the reason we like Vitapreps in this country is twofold. One, uh, they are strong. They're very powerful, especially the new Vita Prep 3s, and they have an even more monster one that's, that's very, very powerful. You can't go on wattage rating alone. The wattage is kind of a BS unit, uh, a, B, a BS unit of measure of how – that's basically just saying how much energy is it sucking out of the wall. If you put uh, you know, a 1,000-watt light bulb 
on uh, on a wire and then attached a 200-watt motor to it and hooked that up to a blender, you know what you have there? A 1,200-watt blender, even though you're throwing away – a thousand watts of that as light and heat. Do you get what I'm saying? So don't take the wattage as the as the rating. What you really care about is how much power is the blender delivering to your food, um, and you know that basically translates into how fast is the tip of the blade moving relative to the food that you're blending. And we talked a little bit about this last week when we were talking about rotor stator homogenizers, and they put so much more energy into your food because they can uh, stop your food from moving so that you can smack it with a moving blade, right? So we talked a little bit about why a rotor stator homogenizer for a given amount of uh, wattage, energy you're putting into it, can deliver more uh, shearing power onto onto your food. So don't go directly on... um, don't go directly on the wattage. What you have to figure out is what the speed of the blade is going to be under load, right? That's really the important thing. And VitaPrep does very, very well at that. Uh, Blendtec does very, very well at that as well, which is another unit you can get in the U.S. It actually has a slightly wider bra- blade than most VitaPreps, and I think it's a better tip speed, so theoretically gets a better, uh, better product. But here's where VitaPrep really wins uh, over all other blenders in the U.S. that I've used so far, and that is the user interface. If you're making smoothies all day, right, you want to press a button and you want to have that smoothie just get made and it's going to go through a bunch of profiles to make sure that thing gets blended properly and you don't want to have to scoop and mix around with all kinds of things. Um, Blendtex are great at that because they're designed for juice bars and that's why they have a lock on a lot of the juice bar market in the U.S. because any monkey can throw a bunch of bananas into a Blendtec along with some protein powder and a bunch of other crap, press a button and walk away and you get a, a smoothie that's smooth that doesn't have a lot of chunks and particles in it, right? Vitapreps, on the other hand, typically they used to have a kind of a bad uh, blender pitcher style that required you to use a tamper to kind of move things around. Otherwise, it tends to choke up at the base, right? Uh, and which is kind of unfortunate. Um, the benefit of that choked up bo- base on a blender at the bottom of a Vitaprep that people don't talk about is that you can get a smaller amount of liquid to b- blend properly in a Vitaprep than you can in the equivalent Blendtec because you have to fill the Blendtec up above the blade level before it starts blending properly, and it's a much wider area down there than it is in the Vitaprep. But that said, if you're going to blend a whole bunch, the, Vita- uh, the Blendtec has a better geometry at the bottom of its, uh, uh, at the bottom of its pitcher to get the stuff going. Vitaprep has a new uh, pitcher that is has a similar geometry. Anyway, that's you know a little bit here or there. But where the Vitaprep really wins is on that interface. It's got two flap switches and a knob. When you're a cook, you don't want to have to have your boss come in and program, I'm going to make a pesto into your freaking blender. You want to have a switch so that you can and then go in high and spin it high when you're going. That's what you really want. And Vitaprep is the best at giving you immediate feedback with a, you know, a potentiometer knob that tells you, you know, that lets you set exactly how fast you want it to be at this minute. Flip it between high and low with big old style goofy paddle switches with very minimal electronics, right? And that's really where the Vita Prep is awesome. Even though that, uh, that little potentiometer thing goes crappy a lot and you have to replace them after a couple of years, they start getting all wonky on you and then you'll turn it on and it'll ring, 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 ring without you turning it. Everybody hates that and you'll eventually spray stuff all over your ceiling. The user interface is so good that people love it. And this is why – and I called the guys at Blendtec, frankly, maybe five years ago, four years ago, and I was like, look, you have an awesome piece of equipment. Your user interface sucks. What you need to do is build a unit for chefs that just has a knob and, a, and, you know, and two buttons like the Vitaprep has. And they said, yeah, but this really gives control to – I was like, listen, shut up. I'm telling you a cook wants two flip switches and a knob to change the speed. So anyway, 
Uh, the C-Mac unit looks very good. Uh, it is also completely electronically controlled, so I'm sure it does really well in the juice market. Um, you know, uh, James said that he's, you know, he said that basically all of the reviews he gets off are, are raw and vegan like websites and kind of, you know, impugns their, their taste a little bit because they've already made such a poor life choice in being a raw vegan. This is his words, not mine. Uh, and while that might be true, James, they are like raw vegan people know a boatload about juicing because they have a whole subculture that basically turns everything they eat into a liquid and drinks their food in liquid form. So whether or not you agree with their life choices, they know from juicing and blending. And the Australian website that uh, he sent me to, which is a, a, a Battle of the Blenders dash pumpkin, if you want to look it up on the uh, on the internet and the YouTube, and the Australian dude in that actually has a really nice term for instead of high speed blenders, he calls them power blenders, which I really like because it makes it makes it seem like your blender is a puny blender unless it's a power blender, right? So he re- he has this one, this Australian one called C Mac, and if there's anyone in Australia, I would love to try a C Mac. Like I don't know if I ever get to Australia or if anyone ever wants to send one to us, I'd love to try it. It basically electronically senses uh, whether or not you're blending properly and adjusts the speed automatically. And while that sounds great, I still want the control. I want the flap doodle and the control. So I'd love to be able to have that electronic BS, but I'd love to also be able to shoot it in the head and be able to run my blender like a normal blender. The other one, also from Down Under, but available here that he mentions, is Breville. Breville makes a good quality blender. I'll tell you a little story about this. I was doing a demo with Chris Young in Florida for the Miami uh, Food and – what's it called? South Beach Food and – South Beach Food and Wine Fest with Chris Young from the Myers Cuisine, and this lady we were we were fluffing we were you know fluffing for a bunch of Food Network stars like Giada and stuff. This little kid comes up and he's like, he they, she raises her hand. I think she's got a question for me or for Chris. We're like, yes, little girl, what's going? She's like, I made this pasta necklace for Giada. And I'm like, oh jeez. And then so I, so I had to save the pasta necklace. And I mean, I, I couldn't tell the kid. Listen, I've never met Giada, and they're gonna hustle my butt out of here and like you know basically flush me down the toilet before they bring Giada on with her entourage. But I was like, look kid i'll leave the pasta necklace around this thing and i'm sure giada will see it so hopefully giada got her pasta necklace anyway that's aside the point breville was sponsoring one of the things there and they had the rep there and they show me the blender picture and she says to me you can't break it go ahead try to break it i said really she's like yeah and this lady had never met me before so i said okay all right then. So I put it on the ground and I jumped up as high as I could and stomped on the blender like three and four times. Uh, and I was able to shave a portion of the blender off because it was on concrete. So I was able to shave a corner off of the blender pitcher, but the be- blender pitcher did in fact not break. So one of their marketing claims is that the blender pitcher is very strong and indeed it is. Whether or not the blender itself it can get close to a Vita Prep, I don't know. I've seen some favorable reviews, but I've never actually blended with it because we didn't have the stuff on hand to uh, blend. And those are my feelings on blending. Oh, by the way, one more thing. Do not read any, any magazine out there, whether or not they're my friends, like Popular Mechanics, they're a friend of mine. Uh, you know, I've worked with them. Um, you know, Cooks Illustrated, I'm fine with those guys. Never believe anyone's blender ratings. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. They give you stupid reasons to like or dislike a blender. The only thing that matters is can it take – can it take a, a sauce that you would have had to strain through a tammy and make it so that it's silky smooth and delicious? Can it get the particle size down below or close to about 20 microns so that you taste this stuff as being smooth? And very few blenders can do that. The Blendtec can do it. The Vita Prep can do it. I'm assuming that the C-Mac uh, can do it. I don't know if the Breville can do it. But it's not whether or not it can make a margarita because in a kitchen, that's not really the test we care about. It's can it make a sauce smooth? So we'll take a commercial break, think about blenders, and we'll be back.
And welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. That song goes out to Colin because uh, Nastasha has broken some secret code in Colin's messages when he comes in that he likes that song. Is that true or false? That's true. Uh, you know, Nastasha's good at those secret codes. But here is a longtime listener Colin's questions. On the ultrasonic homogenizer, by the way, an ultrasonic homogenizer is something that vibrates uh, very rapidly. It uses a piezo, uh, like a piezo transducer, vibrate very rapidly, and uh, you can use it for a couple of things. One, you can make an ultrasonic fog with it, which is how humidifiers work. You can um, you can clean jewelry with it by shaking with it. That's how an ultrasonic jewelry uh, thing works. A homogenizer uses very focused, high power sonic energy to. Uh, cavitate make little bubbles and actually rupture things so that's what an ultrasonic homogenizer is i have one and when you run them people run screaming from the kitchen because they make horrible 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 noise yeah horrible stuff is nodding yes okay Colin wants to know, could one use an ultrasonic homogenizer such as a Branson uh, or the new PolyScience Sonic Prep, which I'm sure is a relabeled Branson uh, because not very many people make these things, uh, as a highly effective toothbrush? As the only rigid bodies in the mouth uh, full of soft matter, the tooth uh, as, as the only rigid bodies in a mouth full of soft matter, the tooth surfaces would likely get the most cavitation action. You can safely immerse your hand into an ultrasonic bath. So I was wondering if the more sensitive skin on the mouth might fare as well. Obviously, you would reduce the wattage, uh, so it acts more of, uh, of a cleaner than a dismembrator, which is something that takes the membranes off of cells, which is another thing they call them sonic dismembrators. Uh, I would certainly work better than those tongue scrapers and would cavitate the bits bits of mixed business from between uh, one's teeth better than floss. Modernist chefs would have no more excuses for halitosis, praise the day. Uh, and he's wondering if this is true or false. Don't do that, Colin. Don't do that. Colin, don't do that. Um, look, I have uh, one, and you know I, I had for a while until it broke an ultrasonic toothbrush, but they're basically vibrating very softly. If you take an ultrasonic homogenizer... And, and it's a demo I used to do to show not to mess around with them. Uh, I would take the probe and stick it into a, a dish towel and fire it up, and it would catch the dish towel on fire from the friction of it going back and forth. So, I mean, you could theoretically hook a rubber toothbrush sucker up to it and uh, turn the power way down. But then you're dealing with like a $2,000 piece of equipment that you're turning into a um, – you know, into a uh, – you know, a $50 toothbrush. They make, like, you can buy, like, a $50 or an $80 ultrasonic toothbrush, and I would definitely go that way. Never stick an ultrasonic homogenizer in your mouth for any reason under any circumstance. And this is, again, not one of those, Jack, we were supposed to have, like, a noise that meant Davis Sirius this time or something like that, but we never got it. Davis Sirius this time, never stick an ultrasonic homogenizer in your mouth. Uh, okay. H. Monterre writes in about uh, whipped cream. Is there a way to make heat-resistant whipped cream that will hold its shape when put into something hot like a cannelle or a soup? Yes. <laughs> you like that, Nastasha? Yes. One of my famous one-word answers. Okay, here's the issues. Um, and this is the typical thing that, that you have to do. When you're using a hydrocolloid, which is a new aid thickener or gelling agent, right, you, you're looking for right now the thing to keep it, keep it hot. Whipped cream itself doesn't stay when you put it into hot things. So what you need to do is make the flavor of whipped cream using an entirely different technology. So the question is, and this is basically, so when Wiley's doing his fried mayonnaise, what does he do? He makes something that's not mayonnaise, that tastes like mayonnaise, that has the texture of mayonnaise, right, but is in fact a fluid gel made out of gelan that's heat stable. So it's texture of mayonnaise 
in a heat-stable form, right? And he can flavor it however he wants. So he does the same thing with hollandaise. He has flavor of hollandaise in a heat-stable form, which happens to be a fluid gel. Now, you could make a cream-flavored fluid gel out of gelan, for instance. You could then whip that in an ISI maker, right? And you could have a very creamy mousse or you, uh, you know, something like that. So you would make a mousse that's whipped with a whipped cream kind of a texture to it that's either a fluid gel or even like a set mousse using a gel uh, and, and, and make it heat stable. But without actually running the tests, I don't know what's going to make the most whipped cream texture. So you might be best off with uh, like a gel and fluid gel stabilized whipped cream, right? So you could take a gel and fluid gel, mix it into regular whipped cream, whip it, and then see whether it'll hold when it's hot or whether the fat will bleed out. You might have to um, actually whip cream uh like over whip like you have to, the problem is you have to stabilize it so it doesn't over whip so you'd have to use like a light cream maybe whip it with a versa whip and set it with another gel that sets when it's hot like you could set it almost like a mousse with like a, with uh with gel in or with something else and that's heat stable agar maybe and set it and see what's going on uh so there's a number of different um things you can do but whipped cream itself isn't going to stabilize you're going to basically have the flavor and texture of whipped cream using an entirely different method of setting um, so you'd have to run a whole bunch of different tests, but that's how I'd go about uh, kind of setting up the experiment if you're going to do it. Does that make any sense, Nastasia? Yes. Made sense. Well, it does because she has to listen to me talk about this crap all the time, so I'm sure this stuff makes some sort of sense to her anyway. Okay. Um, so uh, we have – when is it, Nastasia? When's our museum event? Thursday, September 29th from 7 to 10 p.m. Right. At Ma Pesh. At Ma Pesh, at the, uh, at the restaurant Ma Pesh, which is on... We're basically taking it over. It's on uh, 50... Is there a party going on in our background? Do you hear that no, on the headphones? It's really loud. 50, oh. 15 West 56th Street between 5th and 6th. All right, so Ma Pesh, we're taking over. There's a bar uh, at the mezzanine level when you walk in, and we have an upper story at the hotel... Apparently, the hotel is called the Hotel Chambers. It's not called the Mopesh Hotel, although you could have fooled me. Anyway, so uh, we're going to have an event there. There's going to be five uh, bartenders. And do we have the fifth, fifth one yet or no? No, it might be you. It might be Don Lee. It might be me. Don, if you're listening, we want it to be you because I want to try and get out of one of these events without actually having to make a cocktail. But we have uh, – so maybe Don Lee, right? Who else we have? We have Evan Clem. Uh-huh. We have Kenta. Kenta Goto from uh, from uh, he's actually the best bartender in the world. He won that universe. last universe, actually, right? Assuming that there's no other good mixed drinks anywhere, you know, wherever there's intelligent life. <laughs> assuming they don't have mixed drinks there, you know, which is a fair shot. Uh, the best bartender in the universe won that at the uh, at the tales of the cocktail this year. Uh, who else do we have? We have um, Chad and Christy. Oh, yeah, Chad, uh, Chad Solomon, Christy Pope, and Jason, Jason Luttrell, right? Uh, is that five? Yeah. You sure I'm not missing anyone? And the gimmick on this one, get the gimmick is, uh, if cocktails were street food from X, right? So we have uh, absolute vodka. So that would be if cocktails were street food from Sweden. And where, what else we have? We have we have a uh, Bombay East. That's and I'm not sure whether Jason's going to choose Vietnam or Thailand because they, the thing they add to Bombay East is either Vietnamese peppercorn or Thai uh, lemongrass. And what are the other ones we have? We have uh, Hendrix. Hendrix, which we're doing England because mm-hmm. it's gin, right? And we couldn't do two gins from England. Anyway, whatever. Next. 901. 901, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And what? Wait, did you say absolute? I said absolute. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't get all five. I know we're missing one. Someone's going to get mad at us. Yeah, I know. Someone's going to... Oh, uh, 
Makers. Makers Mark from the United States of America. Giving that one to Chad and Christy because of their Southern heritage. Anyway, there are still slots available if you want to go next week, and you should go to what website to do that? HTTP um, colon backslash backslash mofedmembership.eventbrite.com. But I guess you just do mofedmembership.eventbrite.com, right? Right. And come prepared to spend some freaking money because we're going to have a donation bucket, and we're also going to have an auction. And what we're trying to do is keep the Museum of Food and Drink afloat. Uh, you can go look at the last post we have for the last fundraiser, which was a serious, serious event. This one's going to be just cocktails, but we hope it's going to be a lot of fun. I don't hope. It's going to be a lot of fun. Do we, have, do we know anyone that's going to show up? I'm not going to give away. We're going to try to get some nice special guests that you can mingle with if you come to the event, correct? Yes. All right. Uh, so uh, a note of what I am doing today. Uh, well, actually, we didn't talk about uh, Bourdain shoot, right? You didn't talk about Harvard. You didn't talk we allowed to talk about the Bourdain shoot? Mm-hmm. Is half of your earphone broken? Mm-hmm. Folks out there, half of my earphone's broken, so it feels really weird. I feel like I'm about to... I'm constantly turning around my microphone like a... Oh, there we go. Um, so uh, last week we did the Tony Bourdain shoot, and the theory of this was for No Reservations was his Christmas show. And so I said I didn't want to do an ancient Christmas dinner because really I didn't think Christmas was so important as an ancient dinner source, so I wanted to do what... What would Jesus have eaten or what would Mary and Joseph, is what I was thinking, eaten around their birthday? And the research we did was pretty uh, – was pretty, I thought pretty interesting. We found out that they used an oven in, the, in, the, in that era, in that zone in Palestine, very similar to an Indian tandoor oven of today. And in fact, that style of oven uh, was widespread all the way from India where it's popular today – up through, uh, you know, like where, you know, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, all that stuff is, all the way over through the Middle East and all the way over into Africa. So they had this huge range where this oven, and it's basically a, like a conical vessel that you fire from the bottom and you load from the top, uh, was uh, was basically used throughout this region. So I thought that was awesome. And I've always wanted a tandoor. So Cliff and Piper uh, and I, two, you know, two of my ex-interns, uh, built a tandoor like, in like three hours from crap that we could find at the hardware store. First, we called all these places. Can you get us a tandoor? Can you get us a tandoor? And they're like, it was a thousand bucks in like two weeks to wait. So I was like, crap on that. We built it from flower pots and sand. And actually, you can find on the internets, uh, if you just look up flower pot tandoor into any of the make sites, you can figure out how to make a flower pot tandoor. And that thing worked straight up great. We used a, uh, I, you know, frankly, it was delicious, right? We also made, uh, we, we made pigeon because one of the things that uh, Mary, when, you know, when, when Jesus was born, did I go through this last week? Yeah, I think you did. When Je- okay, so anyway, when Jesus... about the shoot. Uh, well, when, anyway, so we're cooking this pigeon because, you know, when Jesus was born, they gave pigeons a sacrifice to the priests, you know, etc. Uh, so we cooked pigeon and we boiled the pigeon in chicken stock first. And uh, which was typical for what they would have done. We didn't boil it. We did it about 100, 140 degrees or so just to kind of like start the cook off in the chicken stock. And uh, we then rubbed it with cumin and fennel, which were two spices they would have had. We koshered it beforehand so it was nice and salty. We did the official koshering technique, which is soak it in water, like rub salt all over it, let it sit for an hour, and then rinse it three times and pat it dry. Poach it off uh, for a little bit, and then we stuck it in the tandoor. I put a coat hanger through it and put it down in the tandoor and spun it. First, I caught the string on fire and burnt my hand getting the thing out, but, you know, whatever. You know, we can't have everything. So, the, But when we did it, that pigeon was straight up delicious. So if you make yourself a flower pot tandoor, 
uh, with a, you know, a garbage can, sand, if you can get vermiculite, get it, and cook yourself some pigeon in your flower pot tandoor because that was straight up good, right? Yeah. Also, I was really worried because uh, you know, I, I spoke to a, a chef a long time ago about tandoors, and he was always laughing that his favorite part of a, a new cook coming into the kitchen was putting him on tandoor station and watching the flesh peel off the back of his hands from putting his hand into the hot tandoor all the time because it's hot as the devil. And you have to put your hand in and literally slap the bread onto the side of the unit. And so I was a little more than a little bit nervous that this was going to totally fry me out. So, but it, it wasn't so bad. I mean, I, I burnt the hair off my arm, mm-hmm. right? But it wasn't such a big deal. Like I didn't, I didn't run around screaming too much, right? Right. So go ahead and build yourself a flower pot tender. What else do we make? The bread was really good that we made. That we made like an old school flat bread with like really crappily ground uh, wheat and also with barley. But the wheat was a lot better, right? Yes. Yeah. And did we do anything else that was fun? Risotto. No, we didn't do. We I did mean, lentils. She, like Nastasha has risotto on her mind. She must want risotto for dinner because she's just thinking risotto, risotto, risotto. You made risotto. That dude Bourdain is a tall dude too, by the way. Did you know how tall that sucker was? Probably like 6'4". I don't know. He's a huge man. Mm-hmm. Tall. Mm-hmm. Also drops a lot of F-bombs while he's shooting. Did they cut that out in the show or no? I don't think so. Anyway, so look for that to air on December the 15th or something like that. Something like that. Uh, all right, so... What I'm doing today, so when I went to Colombia, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this. When I went to Colombia, uh, I wasn't able to get any money. Uh, so you mentioned this. I mentioned I did. So Chris Costow, the you know three star Michelin chef, uh, you know out in Napa, gave me 150 bucks uh, in Colombian cash money so that I wouldn't die, basically. Um, and we had a discussion, and he said that he is very interested in the flavors of tomato plant. Right. So I, you know, I said, well, I've done that before. You know, I, I took a, I've rotovapped. Uh, and also, you know, who used to be interested in that years ago is David Kinch out at Manresa, also in California. It must be something about Californians and tomato plants, even though we straight up. I'm sorry, California. We straight up have the best tomatoes I've ever had in my life. Crap on anyone else's tomatoes over the, the best tomatoes I've ever had are from New Jersey. Uh, Aunt Ruby's German Greens and the German Stripes from uh, Stokes Farms in in New Jersey. And I can say that they don't give me a break on anything. They don't give me anything. But these are – and in fact, I can't get them anymore hardly because New Yorker or New York Magazine or New Yorker, one of those, wrote them up like two years ago. And now they as the best tomato and they sell out now. So I have a tough time getting them. Hurricane came through here. And it didn't do any damage to New York City, but it did a lot of damage to parts of Jersey and up in Vermont. And all of their tomato plants' roots were underwater, and so a lot of the tomatoes kind of blew up and exploded. So the the season is over early this year. Anyway, that's an aside, a sad aside. I had the last of the great uh, Aunt Ruby's, I am told, uh, on Saturday. They're delicious. Anyway, um, and by the way, Aunt Ruby, who came up with this, the heirloom state, you know her last name? Tuesday. Arnold. Aunt Ruby Arnold, no relation. I wish it was. I wish she was my relative. Anyway, she died in like 1997. So uh, tomato plant vodka, I made it a bunch of years ago in a rotary evaporator, and so I'm going to make it again today. I'm going to make a whole bunch of it, but I'm going to do it legally. For the first time, I'm going to do a legal uh, rotovap of tomato plant vodka, and I'm going to ship it off to Chris Costow as a thank you for uh, giving us, giving me the ability to not be dead in Colombia. Yes? Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm going back. If, did I? Did you ever taste that tomato plant vodka? Mm-hmm. I had still had some left. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's weird. It's green. It tastes so green, so bizarre. I, lo- I like it a lot. I mean, but you could never make a mixed drink with it um, because if you made a mixed drink with it, people are like, what the hell is that flavor? And you say tomato, plant, vodka. Um, when am I going back to Columbia? Do you have any idea? Ooh, soon. Anyway, I love Columbia. I've talked enough about Columbia, but I love it there. I actually have two Colombian friends visiting me right after right after this program. Um, what is it? Yeah. Um, so, and the last thing I'm going to talk about before I go is the Harvard. Because uh, we didn't talk about it or we did? No. So, uh, I'm going back to Harvard sometime in November to do a uh, public lecture on drinks. I hope to have some sort of like whiz-bang cra- craziness. I'm also doing a lecture at the Beverage Alcohol Resource Program, David Wondrich's thing, mm-hmm. which is when? Next week? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so if uh, I don't know if there's still slots available for that, but it's kind of the greatest bar program ever ever made. It's Dave Wondrich, Dale DeGroff, uh, Steve uh, Olson, Paul Packle. Um, I'm sure I'm missing. I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of other things, but it's kind of the craziest bar program in the world because you have some of the biggest spirit nuts on the planet going out and bringing like personal bottles of weird crap, and you spend, I believe, the morning tasting. Every damned, uh, every damned liquor you can, so you can identify it later. And then there's lectures on theory. There's lectures. On, so I'm going to go give a lecture probably on clarification, rotary evaporation, and my general thoughts about high tech stuff next week. Uh, and then a drinks lecture, a lecture in uh, November. Um, but at the Harvard, it's kind of a. I, we didn't do it last year, but it's kind of a strange course, right? I mean, Nastasha, you went. What do you think? I mean, it's kind of an, it's an interesting idea. They get a whole bunch of chefs in to do a demo, and then they try and turn it into a class about, uh, about science, right? Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like, it's physics for poets is basically what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Taught through the lens of cooking, mm-hmm. right? Now, most of the chefs who go, uh, last week was Juan Roca. I don't know who's going to be this week. You know, Juan Roca, if you don't know him, is kind of like super duper badass mofo badass you know guy with low temperature cooking and also with rotary evaporation so you know very big influence on me uh very big influence i think on all the chefs kind of of you know wiley's generation my generation in terms of sous vide and low temperature and whatnot uh they're they're getting like a whole bunch of uh, of people going up but it's kind of weird to have to beat those chefs into kind of a science mold right kind of an interesting problem me because i'm a schmuck instead i was like i was just like i'll just do some demos around the science because you know whatever but do you think they went all right in my lecture? It was all right. It's all right. It's available on the web, so you can see. I listened to it. I said um a lot. Apparently, I don't know, Nastasha, you said I don't say um too much on the radio, but I said um every other word when I was at when I was at Harvard. But let me tell you something. They have a vacuum pump at Harvard. One of the demos we did uh, at Harvard was uh, a demo Johnny had told me about that he saw at Nathan Mirvold's joint with Chris Young. You take liquid nitrogen. You put liquid nitrogen into a vacuum machine, and a regular commercial vacuum machine will work. And you suck a vacuum on it, and as you suck a vacuum on it, the temperature starts dropping at, uh, because you're evaporatively cooling. Think about it. As you're boiling off liquid nitrogen, you're evaporatively cooling it. So when you put a vacuum on it, you boil it off so quickly that the temperature drops about 2-3 degrees, and that's enough to turn liquid nitrogen from a liquid to a solid. Now, Harvard's vacuum machine is so freaking awesome that we needed to literally bleed air out of it because it was sucking too hard of a vacuum too fast, and it just exploded into this solid bunch of uh, nitrogen foam. That was kind of the most fun thing I did, right? That was, I mean, in my feeling, that was pretty badass. And that brings me to my last question, also from James, in Australia, on vacuum equipment. 
I've just managed, James says, to get a large chamber sealer, a uh, vacuum sealer, cheap on eBay. Well, congratulations to you. I've had a look at Modernist Cuisine and online, but uh, all the information out there is sort of stick it in the bag and vac it. What are my tips on maintenance, bag size to food ratio, how to tell when you have cr- uh, crazy over-vacuumed your food, and any other ideas on what to use it for apart from packaging for sous vide and stuffing alcohol into fruit? Well, you can freeze liquid nitrogen into a solid, but that's pretty useless because as soon as you let the air back in, the thing melts and it, and it goes back to being a liquid again. Here's uh, the maintenance. Maintenance is fairly easy on a vacuum machine. You need to do two things regularly. You need to replace the Teflon tape over the seal bar. You need to do that as soon as it starts burning through. Otherwise, your bags are going to be sealed improperly. You just have to buy the tape. You can buy it from a second hand uh, from a third party like McMaster Car. I don't know what they call it in Australia, but I'm sure you have an industrial supply place that sells it. Teflon tape, or you know, not the stuff for plumbing. It's an adhesive, uh, heat-proof Teflon tape, or just get it directly from the vacuum manufacturer uh, from the thing. But that's something to do regularly. But the most important thing, the heart and soul. Literally, the heart of the vacuum machine is the uh, vacuum pump. And the vacuum pump needs one thing to work properly, and that's clean oil. When you vacuum something, uh, as you vacuum it, liquid is be- evaporating off of your product, and it's contaminating your oil with water. And it's reducing the, uh, the, the level of vacuum you can get to and also making it take longer and longer for you to get down to that vacuum. So the key is to keep the pump clean. And the way to keep the pump clean is to run it till it gets hot. Most commercial vacuum machines have a, have a pump in it made by a company called Bush out of Germany, and they're designed to run hot. So what you do is you leave the lid open and you run it for minutes until it gets really hot with air streaming through it, and it's going to boil all the liquid out and keep your pump oil nice and clear. If you do that regularly, you shouldn't have to change your pump oil more than about, depends on how heavy your usage is, but every six months to a year, you should be able to keep it before you have to change it, okay? That's the prime thing in maintenance. Obviously, keep the unit clean. Your unit might have an acrylic lid, so don't wash the lid with alcohol or it could get hazy depending on the unit you have. But that's basically it. Every morning uh, or whenever, whenever you see that it's not working right, I would rip the there, – usually there's a metal plate for some unknown reason covering up the window on the pump showing you what the condition of the oil is. And the first thing I do when I get a vacuum machine is rip that plate off so that I can see the condition of the oil at all times. And I guarantee you if it's been used, it's going to look like salad dressing. So put, you know, put new oil in obviously because you don't know what happened before and then clean your pump oil out. So that's the main uh, thing. Also, bag size to food ratio is important but people don't think about it. If you're sucking a complete vacuum on something, the bag size isn't very important. If you use a bag that's too small, what happens is is you're going to get smashed the bag around the corners of your food and you're going to get crazy portions that look like pillows. They look insane and nobody thinks those are appetizing if you see little bag marks in your food, right? Um, But assuming you have uh, enough liquid like oil or whatever in the bag such that, uh, you know, the, the bag can seal around the liquid and not deform your product, Right then, having a bag that's you know much bigger, if you're sucking a full vacuum, doesn't make that much of a difference. But uh, two things: you don't want a big bag because a big bag takes up extra room in your circulator. Right, you're spending extra money on the plastic, although that's not the primary thing. But the main thing is that a lot of times we're going to suck an incomplete vacuum on our product, and then the bag size does matter because if you have kind of a, a, a loose seal and a big bag, it gets really loose. Right, so you want to try and have the bag. Be uh, about, you know, uh, just extend enough around your food to uh, allow it to close around your, your sauce without, or oil or whatever without it crunching your food. 
That said, it's not hyper, hyper critical. But uh, the reason you're going to want to not suck a complete vacuum on stuff is that the vacuum, t- the vacuum level that you use radically affects the texture of certain products. For instance, chicken. If you, uh, you know, if you vacuum chicken really hard, it tastes like canned chicken after you cook it. If you vacuum fish really hard, it it ruins the texture, makes it kind of stringy. And you can look on cookingissues.com and look for uh, you, you look under. I think it's called boring, but useful technical post on vacuum machine or something like that. You can look it up and you can see our test that we ran on that. Uh, and, um, you know, Chris and, uh, and Nathan have a theory on that in Modernist Cuisine about why that's the case. They think it has something to do with boiling. I kind of – I disagree with that. I'm, I'd love to have that debate with them, but I kind of disagree with it. Um, but that said, you know, if you, if you overcompress something for storage, it's usually not a big deal. It's when you cook something under a high vacuum, that's my feeling, is that you're going to have a, a, a problem with it. Um, anyway, as for other ideas, you're going to have to wait for our next installation, which I promise I will start working on. And I'll tell you what, Nastasha has been beating on me to do some of these sous vide primers and I have more incentive. I'll give you a little hint because I know the French Culinary Institute does not listen to our webcasts. I believe the cooking issues blog is going to be switched to my personal ownership soon with, you know, they'll, they'll still have, they'll still be the French Culinary Tech and Stuff blog. But I believe what happened is. Uh, I wrote a, a post a couple of weeks back right before I went to Columbia on how to mess with pressure cookers um, and uh, their lawyer and their lawyers freaked out. Right, Nastasha, true or false? Should I be talking about this? Their lawyers freaked out. And so I think they think it might be easier for it to just be my personal blog. It's called the French Culinary's Tech and Stuff blog. So anyway, that's that and that's Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. following messages from Bubby's. Bubby's Main Street is thrilled to announce a fall program of special dinners celebrating efforts to renovate American agriculture and the American menu. Each event will feature a conversation with persons who are deeply involved in a significant aspect of this project, followed by a meal that illustrates materially and pleasurably the themes under discussion. From our perspective at Bubby's, we observe and participate in three parallel movements that are gaining momentum in the New York region and around the country. New farmers supplying green markets and alternative food networks with produce and animals raised without relying on an arsenal of chemicals or industrial methods. New artisans reinventing food crafts and a fresh appreciation of authentic American cooking from all regions and communities. For more information about these events, visit bubbies.com. That's B-U-B-B-Y-S.com. Or contact Danny Finkel directly at 646-338-0422. following is a message from Heritage Foods USA. 14 family farms and over 50 restaurants have committed to participation in No Goat Left Behind, a new program developed by Heritage Foods USA, a meat distribution company dedicated to preserving endangered breeds. Without an end market, the majority of male dairy goats are sold into the commodity market or killed at birth. 
Dairy farmers are always struggling with feed prices, milk prices, and weather. Goats usually have twins or triplets, and for every female who will become a milker, there is a male buckling who will become a financial drain. It makes no sense that these males are sold into the commodity market or put to death when the United States imports almost 50% of its annual goat supply. Home consumers interested in participating can order goats through HeritageFoodsUSA.com. They will receive goats via FedEx, and home delivery is available for New York City customers. In addition to the goat, these packages will also include recipes and a DVD featuring interviews with the farmers, processors, and chefs demonstrating how to break down and cook goat. Again, for more information on No Goat Left Behind, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com or call Aaron Fairbanks at 718-389-0985. The Heritage Meat Shop has just opened in the Essex Street Market. Open from 9 to 7, Monday through Saturday, and 10 to 6 on Sundays, the Heritage Meat Shop supports independent family farms and animal welfare-approved and certified humane raising standards. Most importantly, they offer a wide variety of heritage breeds. So stop by, get a sandwich, try the charcuterie. The Heritage Meat Shop at the Essex Street Market.